ready to get into the most wonderful last three chapters of the book of Judges tonight. I kind of warned you last week, I think, that uh, these next three chapters are very, very difficult chapters to read. Um, and it's not because of anything that uh, well, we aren't aware of as far as the depravity of man is concerned, but when you see it in the Word of God as it's given here, it reminds us of how truly far from God we can be. So I'd like us to be very carefully considering uh, the message tonight that comes from God's Word is be certain that you do what God wants in your life. And don't ever get to the point where you do things that are right in your own eyes when you know that it's wrong in God's eyes. That's the really great message that comes from the study of the book of Judges. And again, over and over again, we've seen the writer of Judges emphasize that, that they did what was right in their own eyes. And it's unfortunate, but it's true. They left their God for the service of the Baals and the Ashtoreths and all of the other Canaanite gods that were still in the land, and they did not do what God had intended for them to do by wiping out all of those people. The Canaanites were judged by God. It took over 400 years before he brought that final judgment. It was to be at the hands of his people Israel, but they did not do a complete job of it, and it cost them a great deal of problems throughout their history. I'd like to, before we begin our study in chapter 19 tonight, to just go back to chapter 2 of the book of Judges, and I'd like to read, you don't need to turn there, but I'd like you to listen carefully to what the writer of the book of Judges said back in chapter 2. There are two verses. The first is verse 10, where it says, When all that generation, and that's the generation that followed immediately after Joshua died, when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. In just one generation, the knowledge of the Lord had been completely eliminated. And except for a very, very few people, there was no concern for the things of God. There was no spiritual leadership. Throughout the entire book of Judges, you never see anything mentioned about the high priest or the priesthood in general or the Levitical tribe that was to teach the nation of Israel until chapter 17. And from chapter 17 until the end of the book, it's not about judges anymore. It's about two separate incidents that happened very early on in the time of the judges. And those two things are given for our benefit so that we can see that which we just read here in chapter 2, verse 10, is indeed what had taken place. The other verse in chapter 2 that I want us to be reminded of as we go through these last three chapters is found in verse 19 of chapter 2 where it says, And it came to pass when the judge was dead, any of the judges, this happened over and over and over again, whenever the judge that God had sent to deliver them 
as we had seen in the first several chapters of the book of Judges, all of the judges had at least partly delivered the nation of Israel. But it says when it came, it came to pass when that judge was dead, that they, the people of Israel, reverted and behaved even more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn ways. And again, over and over again, the writer of Judges says that they did what was right in their own eyes. We saw that was the case when we started the study last week, where in chapter 7 said that very thing, that they did what was right in their own eyes. In verse 6, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What a terrible thing that was for the people of Israel to have left their God and served Baal and suffered the consequence over and over and over again. But every time that God delivered them and they prospered and then they began to think they were all, all right doing the things that they wanted to do, they fell right back into the same pattern but went deeper into sin, even though what we're going to see here tonight is so very, very terrible. And it was early on in their time in the land of Canaan. We know that because in chapter 20, in verse 8, is a reference to Phinehas, which is the grandson of Aaron. And he was still the high priest. Only time it's mentioned in the entire book that the high priest Phinehas had some work to be done in regard to the events that are recorded for us. So keep that in mind as we move forward from this point to the end of the book, we're going to see that depravity in action. And it's very, very hard to read, very, very hard to understand. But know this, we all are capable of such things if we do not consider the things of God. I also want to remind us that we need to remember that even in this present hour, men have not changed those who are outside of the will of God, those who do not care for the things of God, are just as evil as these people were in that day. And they're serving their own gods, whether it's uh, their own idols of their own making, or whether it's the enemy of our souls. They are serving a god. Chapter 19, beginning with verse 1 tells us these things. And it came to pass in those days, when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim. He took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now this is not the same Levite as the Levite that we looked at the last time. They both are from Ephraim, but they both are far from God. And this particular Levite happens to have a concubine. Now, a concubine is kind of a secondary wife. Um, we're not told if he had a true wife by definition, but a concubine was a lesser class of what you would call a wife. As a matter of fact, he's referred to as her husband and she as his wife, but she's actually just a concubine. And in that sense, secondary because... Uh, if they had any children, 
they would not be able to inherit the father's uh, legacy because they were not true children according to the Mosaic Covenant, unless his true wife was childless. So if the true wife had children and his concubine had also children, the children of the concubine would not qualify to receive the inheritance. We saw that with regard to Gideon, remember. He was a concubine's son, or his uh, son was, rather, not Gideon, but his son, uh, who was the, 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 the son of a concubine of Gideon. He did not get the privilege of getting an inheritance from his father, and his half-brothers kicked him out of the family, remember. So, he's now married, this Levite is married to a concubine, and she's from Bethlehem and Judah. And then it says in verse 2, but his concubine played the harlot against him. So, she was uh, not exactly a faithful woman. And he, she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there four whole months. And then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back, having his servant and a couple of donkeys with him. So he goes to her father's house to get her back, to take back home to Ephraim with him. Apparently, the woman's father was very appreciative of that, considered the fact that if she goes back to her father's house, then he has to take care of her. So when the husband came to get her, it pleased the father quite well that he had done so. So again, in the ending of verse 3, it says, So she brought him into her father's house, and when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. And now his father-in-law, the young woman's father, detained him, and he stayed with him three days. So they ate and drank and lodged there. Very customary for that particular time in Israel's history and in the cultures, in even today in nomadic uh, cultures, uh, generosity is a very, very, very important aspect of uh, their livelihood. And so this father wanted to express his thanks for the husband of his daughter to come and take her, and he celebrated his willingness to do so by inviting him to stay and be a guest at his home. So they did that for three days. Verse 5 says, Then it came to pass on the fourth day that they arose early in the morning, and he stood to depart. But the young woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh your heart with a morsel of bread, and afterward go your way. And so they sat down, and the two of them ate and drank together. And then the young woman's father said to the man, Please be content to stay all night, and let your heart be merry. So he's inviting him to stay an extra day, a fourth day. Well, that seemed to be appealing to the man. It was fine with him. Generosity, again, being extended. He was gracious to receive that. And so he stayed. And then in verse 7 it says, And when the man stood to depart, his father-in-law urged him, so he lodged there again. And then he arose early in the morning on the fifth day to depart. But the young woman's father said, Please refresh your heart. So they delayed until afternoon, and both of them ate. So again, he's doing the same thing for the fifth day, and now it's getting to the point where the Levite really wants to get out of there. He wants to take his wife and leave. It's time for him to go, and it's already late in the day. He knows he's not going to be able to travel 
very far, but he wants to get on the road and get ahead of the traffic, if you will. Well, verse 8 says, Then he rose early in the morning on the fifth day to depart. But the young woman's father said, Please refresh your heart. So they delayed until afternoon, and both of them ate. And when the man stood to depart, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the young woman's father, said to him, Look, the day is now drawing toward evening. Please spend the night. See, the day is coming to an end. Lodge here, that your heart may be merry. Tomorrow go on your way early so that you may get home. You'll be able to travel from the early morning and make it all the way home before sundown. Verse 10 says, However, the man was not willing to spend that night. So he rose and departed and came opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem at that time, early on in the time of the judges and until David's day, was ruled by the Jebusites and it was then called Jebus instead of Jerusalem. He's on his way from Bethlehem and he goes by Jerusalem or Jebus and he says with him were two saddled donkeys and his concubine also was with him. And they were near Jebus and the day was far spent. And the servant said to his master, Come, please, let us turn aside into the city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. But his master said to him, We will not turn aside here into the city of a foreigner who are not the children of Israel. We will go on to Gibeah. Now, Gibeah is in the territory of Benjamin. It's part of the tribes of the nation of Israel. Jebus was inhabited by the Jebusites, and he decided it's not a good thing for us to lodge in a foreigner's city. It's better off for us to go to a city in the nation of Israel in one of the tribes. They picked Gibeah because it was about five miles distant from Jerusalem. So it says in his verse 13, he said to his servant, Come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night either in Gibeah or in Ramah. And they passed by and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go into lodge in Gibeah. And when he went in, he sat down in the open square of the city, for no one would take him into their house to spend the night. Now that was very unusual, but not a single soul offered to give him the hospitality that should have been extended to him as a traveler. It wasn't just that the traveler benefited from that, but oftentimes the owner of the house would invite the traveler to come in so he could get caught up on all of the various news that might come from the traveler's journeys. So that's one way that they kept abreast of the various things that were going on around them, uh, especially in those days where they didn't have cell phones and uh, internet connections or anything that allowed them to be able to get in information from distant places. So it benefited both the guest and the host for them to offer that hospitality. But there was no one who offered that hospitality to them. Very, very odd that that would be the case. Verse 16 says, Just then an old man came in from his work in the field at evening, who was also from the mountains of Ephraim. He was staying in Gibeah, whereas the men of the place were Benjamites. So he apparently had a land territory there in Benjamin and had a home there in the city of Gibeah. So he sees this man in the center of the city. It's dusk, and he's thinking, 
that ain't good. We're going to want you to get out of this place as soon as you can. Now, the Levite didn't know the danger he was in, but the old man certainly did. It says in verse 17, when he raised his eyes, he saw the traveler in the open square of the city, and the old man said, where are you going, and where do you come from? So he said to him, we're passing from Bethlehem in Judah toward the remote mountains of Ephraim. I am from there. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I am going into the house of the Lord, but there is no one who will take me into his house. Although we have been we have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for myself, for your female servant, for the young man who was with your servant, there's no lack for anything. And the old man said, Peace be with you. However, let all your needs be my responsibility, only do not spend the night in the open square. So he brought him into the house and gave fodder to the donkeys, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. So he gives his house as an option for the man to dwell in for the night. And he takes that offer, and it's a very generous thing for him to have done. Now, the reason that the old man insisted upon that unfolds for us in the following verses. And I'd like to just go ahead and read straight through from verse 22 to the end of the chapter and so that we get the entire story in one fell swoop. So it says in verse 22, As they were enjoying themselves, suddenly certain men of the city, perverted men, surrounded the house and beat on the door. They spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came to your house, that we may know him carnally. But the man the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly. Seeing this man has come into my house, do not commit this outrage. Look, here is my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me bring them out now. Humble them. Do with them as you please. But to this man, do not do such a vile thing. But the men would not heed him. So the man took his concubine and brought her out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. Then the woman came as the day was dawning and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was till it was light. And when her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way, there was his concubine fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, Get up, and let us be going. But there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto the donkey, and the man got up and went to his place. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, laid hold of his concubine, and divided her into twelve pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And so it was that all who saw it said, no such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and speak up. How terrible this whole scene has been. I want to just briefly review all of the various things that we just read are complete, abominable, and terrible, depraved things that men can do. And these are Israelites. They should have known the true God. 
but they had already turned away from God to serve others, and they were reflecting that rejection of God in their actions. Notice that the story is quite similar to the story in the book of Genesis when Lot was in the city of Sodom, and they wanted to take Lot. And the men that were with him. And they wanted to have sex with those men. But those men happened to be angels. Well, there's no angel in this story. There's a concubine who loses her life at the hands of perverted men who wanted to have carnal sex with another man, but they instead took advantage of this one woman all night long, abusing her, raping her over and over again until she was so weakened that she finally succumbed at the threshold of the door of the man where she should have been able to spend the night. The Levite himself apparently spent the night, and I'm not really sure, if there's, no, there's no mention of whether he slept well, but it doesn't say that he didn't sleep. It says he got up and went out ready to leave, and as he began to head out the door, he sees his concubine wife on the ground and just simply says, get up, let's go. She didn't respond. And then he realized that she's dead. Doesn't say anything about his grief, doesn't say anything about his sorrow, but apparently he put her on his donkey and he went back to Ephraim, his home, and it's there that he does this very, very unusual thing. He cuts up her body into 12 pieces and sends one piece to each of the tribes. 12 tribes, including the tribe of Benjamin, where the terrible deed had taken place. Every one of the tribes received a portion of the woman's body with an explanation of what had taken place. And now, chapter 20 through the remainder of the text tells us how the people of Israel respond to this terrible thing. Verse 1 says in verse uh, chapter 20, So all the children of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, as well as from the land of Gilead, and the congregation gathered together as one man before the Lord at Mizpah. And the leaders of all the people, all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. It tells us here that there's 400,000 foot soldiers. Again, this is not long after they had conquered the land. They still have their military somewhat together, and they gather them with a great large force of 400,000 soldiers who drew the sword. Verse 3 says, Now the children of Benjamin heard that the children of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And then the children of Israel said, Tell us, how did this wicked deed happen? Talking to the Levite now, and he explains in verse 4, So the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, My concubine and I went into Gibeah, which belonged to Benjamin, to spend the night. And the men of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me, but instead they ravished my concubine so that she died. So I took hold of my concubine, cut her in pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of the inheritance of Israel because they committed lewdness and outrage in Israel. They certainly did. 
But he also committed some very, very heinous things as well. He didn't really share all of that story, but fortunately for us, the writer of Judges does. It's interesting to me that God, through his Holy Spirit, does not ever try to hide the sin of his people. He uses it to explain to all of us how terrible sin is and the consequences of sin, how terrible the consequences are as well. So we've got the story that the Levite has told all the people of Israel, and they are infuriated. They want to do something to take vengeance on behalf of the woman for what they had done. So it says in verse 7, Look, all of you are children of Israel. Give your advice and counsel here and now. So all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, nor will any turn back to his house. But now this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. We will take ten men out of every hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, a hundred out of every thousand, and a thousand out of every ten thousand, to make provisions for the people, that when they come to Gibeah and Benjamin, they may repay all the vileness that they have done in Israel. So they take about a tenth of the 400,000 men to get the provisions that they need to provide for the army as they move from Mizpah into the territory of Benjamin to attack the city of Gibeah. So all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, in verse 11, united together as one man. Then the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this wicked that has occurred among you? Now, therefore, deliver up the men, the perverted men who are in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove the evil from Israel. But the children of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. Instead, the children of Benjamin gathered together from their cities to Gibeah to go to battle against the children of Israel. And from their cities at that time, the children of Benjamin numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who numbered 700 select men. And among all those people were 700 select men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. Pretty accurate sling throwers. They were all left-handed as well, it says. Interesting because the name Benjamin was given to him by his father, and it means son of my right hand. But these are left-handed men, very unusual, and they were select men. There were 700 of them, quite an amazing thing. And they all were from the city of Gibeah. And it says in verse 17, Now besides Benjamin, the men of Israel numbered 400,000 men who drew the sword, and all of these were men of war. Then the children of Israel arose and went up to the house of God to inquire of God. And they said, Which of us shall go up first to battle against the children of Benjamin? The Lord said, Judah first. It's interesting. It tells us specifically they went up to the house of God. Now, God wasn't in a house at that point. His tabernacle was in Shiloh, and it was just a tent, the very tent that came from the wilderness journeyings. But they called it the house of God. And it was there that they went to inquire of the Lord. Now we're not told here, but Phineas was still the high priest at this time. 
We're told that elsewhere in another verse of Scripture later, in verse 28. But notice that they ask the question, which one of us shall go up first to battle? Which one of our tribes should lead the way? And they get an answer from the Lord. And the Lord said, Judah first. It's interesting because Judah goes first in battle in many, many places in the Scripture. And it is a type of, because Judah, the root word associated with the name Judah, is the same root for the word for praise that we so often see. Hallelujah. So here we have an interesting statement. They've asked, who should go? They didn't ask, should we go? That would have been the correct approach. But they did not apparently ask that question. They assumed that it was right for them to do so. And God gives them an answer. God doesn't say, don't go. God says, send Judah first. So he gives them the impression that God is with them. Now, it's very, very strange as we read the following verses that it appears that God tricks them into doing something that costs them dearly. As we read on, it tells us, in verse 19, So the children of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin. And the men of Israel put themselves in battle array to fight against them at Gibeah. Then the children of Benjamin came out of Gibeah, and on that day cut down to the ground 22,000 men of the Israelites. What a terrible slaughter it was for those 400,000 soldiers to lose 22,000 in one day's battle. We're not told how many of the Benjamites died in that battle, but it was a terrible slaughter of the nation of Israel, an embarrassment to them. But God said, send Judah. Why would God have sent them to suffer such a terrible loss as that? The only explanation I have is because of what we read as we began the study tonight in chapter 2, verse 10. Because they had turned away from their God and served Baals. Because they had rejected their God. And they had turned away and disregarded the things of the Lord. And they did things that were right in their own eyes. That, I believe, is the reason God is judging not just Benjamin here, but the entire nation of Israel. And he's beginning first with the ten tribes that are invading against, coming against their brothers in Benjamin. Very, very surprised they were defeated in that one day with a terrible slaughter. Well, verse 22 continues and says, And the people, that is, the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and again formed the battle line in the place where they had put themselves in array on the first day. So they figured, God has got to be with us. He must have allowed this. Can't answer why, but we know that we're doing the right thing. Well, they were doing perhaps the right thing, but they weren't recognizing the fact that they were using the wrong approach to God. It tells us in verse 23, Then the children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening, and asked counsel of the Lord, saying, Shall I again draw near for battle against the children of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said to them, Go up against him. So the children of Israel approached the children of Benjamin on the second day. And Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah on the second day and cut down to the ground 18,000 more of the children of Israel. 
all these drew the sword. One-tenth of the entire army of the nation of Israel has been wiped out by the Benjamite forces. 40,000 men have died. It tells us now then in verse 26, And all the children of Israel, that is all the people, went up and came to the house of God and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Now they're beginning to approach God in a way that God approves. They're offering these burnt offerings as an indication that they recognize their sinfulness. They're offering a peace offering because they want to have peace with God. They're expressing their desire to fellowship with God. Those two offerings are very, very important to approach the Lord God. And now, having done so and fasted that day, it tells us in verse 27, So the children of Israel inquired of the Lord, and the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And here it is, we find out who is the high priest. It tells us, And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days. So he's probably very old by now, but he's still the high priest. He's still there, and he's still serving the Lord. And they ask him, Shall I yet go up again out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? They're asking the right question this time. Shall we go? Is it right for us to do this? And the Lord said, responding this time, I believe, in a way that gives them the confidence that they needed because Phineas is telling them, this is the Lord's word to you. Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. He hadn't given that kind of encouragement until this time. This time, they're getting a word from God that says, you will succeed. And because they have come to the Lord in a proper fashion, and they believe that the God of Israel does indeed respond when he is approached in the proper fashion. So should we. Then Israel set men in ambush all around Gibeah. Now they've got a different battle plan. They're having a very, very similar approach to this battle that will happen next. As they had done with regard to Ai when they defeated the city of Ai when they first entered into the land. They set up an ambush. And then the rest of the army presented themselves before the city of Gibeah. They set an ambush around all of Gibeah, it says in verse 29. And then in verse 30, it says, And the children of Israel went up against the children of Benjamin on the third day and put themselves in battle array against Gibeah as at the other times. So the children of Benjamin came out against the people and were drawn away from the city. They thought, here we are again. We'll have another victory against the people of Israel, just as we had done the previous two days. They were expecting to win another battle. They went out against the people and they were drawn away from the city. And it says in the middle of verse 31, they began to strike down and kill some of the people as at the other times in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah, and in the field about 30 men of Israel. So they have begun the battle and they're winning the battle by defeating and killing 30 of the people of Israel. They're thinking that things are going to be going just like it did in the last couple of days. However, in verse 32 it tells us, the children of Benjamin said, they are defeated before us at first. But the children of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city 
to the highways. So the strategy is this. They're drawing the army of the Benjamites away from the city further, far enough so that the men who are waiting in ambush can do what they need to do. And it tells us that's what's going to take place in verse 33. So all the men of Israel rose from their place and put themselves in battle array at Baal Tamar. And then Israel's men in ambush burst forth from their position in the plain of Geba. And 10,000 select men from all Israel came against Gibeah, and the battle was fierce. But the Benjamites did not know that disaster was upon them. The Lord defeated Benjamin. Notice that it's not Israel here that defeated him, but the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. God used the nation of Israel to now bring the punishment that was due to the people of the Benjamite, Benjaminite. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the children of Israel destroyed that day 25,100 Benjamites. All these drew the sword. Remember, they had started with over 26,000. They had lost a few. Now they have lost a total here in this one battle of 25,100. It tells us in the next few chapter, uh, verses that it was done in in stages. So that verse 36 says, The children of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. And the men of Israel had given ground to the Benjamites because they relied on the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. And the men in ambush quickly rushed upon Gibeah. And the men in ambush spread out and struck the whole city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in ambush was that they would make a great cloud of smoke rise up from the city and set the city on fire. Whereupon the men of Israel would turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about thirty of the men of Israel. And for they said, Surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the cloud began to rise from the city in a column of smoke, the Benjamites looked behind them, and there was the whole city going up in smoke to heaven. And when the men of Israel turned back, the men of Benjamin panicked, for they saw that disaster had come upon them. They realized that they were in a trap. The city was no longer where they could go back to find protection. The 10,000 men had conquered the city, and the other Israelites were before them. They had nowhere to go except to run into the mountains. The men of Israel turned back. The men of Benjamin panicked, for they saw that disaster had come upon them. Again, in verse 42 it says, Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness. But the battle overtook them, and whoever came out of the cities, they destroyed in their midst. They surrounded the Benjamites, chased them, and easily trampled them down as far as the front of Gibeah toward the east. And 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. All these were men of valor. Then they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon, and they cut down 5,000 of them on the highways. Then they pursued them relentlessly up to Gidom and killed 2,000 of them. So 18 plus 5 plus 2, a total of 25,000 men. Verse 46 says, So all who fell of Benjamin that day were 25,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon, and they stayed at the rock of Rimon for four months. 
And the men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin and struck them down with the edge of the sword from every city, men and beasts, all who were found. They also set fire to all the cities they came to. Chapter 20 has ended with a total destruction of the tribe of Benjamin with the exception of 600 men. Men, women, and children, cities burned, all lost because of the sin of a few. That's the cost of sin. Remember, even when Ai was defeated, before they had taken Ai, the reason they could not take Ai at first was because of the sin of one man. And many people died as a result of that one man's sin. Same thing applies here. Many died because of the sins of a few. Oh, how we need to learn this lesson well. Sin costs greatly. God judges sin. God hates all of that which has been done, both in Israel and in Benjamin. But Benjamin now is in a very, very difficult place. There's only 600 men for the entire tribe that once was a very, very prosperous tribe. Now it's almost extinct. What is going to be done? So the people of Israel have come to the realization that they've almost annihilated one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they regret terribly that having been done. So verse 1 of chapter 21 continues now with how they plan to bring some form of retribution so that the tribe of Benjamin can continue to exist. So they need to come up with some kind of a plan, but they've got a problem. It tells us in chapter 21, verse 1, Now the men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mizpah, saying, None of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin as a wife. They had made a vow that nobody in all of the eleven tribes would give any of their children, their daughters, as a wife to any of the Benjamite men. So if they adhere to that vow, and they would because they made the vow and they considered the vow to be a very, very important and irrevocable thing. They, had, they were in a problem. They had a predicament. They could have offered their wives to the 600 men, given them to those 600 men, and the 600 men could have repopulated the city, cities of Benjamin rather quickly. However, because of the vow, they knew that they couldn't accomplish that. So they had this dilemma. So it says in verse 2 of verse two of chapter 21, Then the people came to the house of God and remained there before God till evening. They lifted up their voice and wept bitterly and said, O Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel that today there should be one tribe missing in Israel? So it was on the next morning that the people rose early and built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. The children of Israel said to him, or, the children of Israel said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not go come up with the assembly of the Lord? So they're inquiring among all the various tribes, of the eleven tribes that came against Israel, were there any who didn't cooperate with this effort to respond to the call to go to war against Benjamin? 
And they say in the end of verse 5, the reason they're asking this, for they had made a great oath, another vow, another oath, concerning anyone who had not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. So among the 11 tribes, if there were any of those who refused to come to the battle, they made a vow to seek them out and to kill them. Again, this is not what God would want. But this is how they did things back then. Because they did what was right in their own eyes. Verse 6 says, And the children of Israel grieved for Benjamin their brother and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel today. What shall we do for wives for those who remain, seeing we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them our daughters as wives? And they said, What one is there from the tribes of Israel who did not come up to Mizpah to the Lord? And in fact, no one had come up to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. So when the people were counted, indeed, no one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. So the congregation sent out there 12,000 of their most valiant men and commanded them, saying, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, including women and children. And this is the thing that you must do. You shall utterly destroy every male and every woman who has known a man intimately. So they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man intimately, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. But they killed all of the other residents of the city of Jabesh Gilead. What a terrible tragedy they have brought themselves to in making the vows that they had made. But now they've got 400 women who can become the wives of the Benjamites. Notice that they're not giving them 'From the men who went to war, they're giving them from the men who refused to go to war, so they believe that in doing this they're not disavowing their vow, so they go ahead with this plan, and four hundred men of the Benjamites now have wives, but there's still two hundred others that do not still a problem. Verse 13 says, And the whole congregation sent word to the children of Benjamin who were at the rock of Rimon and announced peace to them. So Benjamin came back at that time and they gave them the women whom they had saved the lives of the women of Jabesh Gilead and yet they had not found enough for them. And the people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who remain since the women of Benjamin have been destroyed? And they said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe may not be destroyed from Israel. How righteous they seem to be. But it's just not God's perfect will. And yet God is using it. Over and over again, we find throughout the word of God, fool-hearted men make wrong decisions, but God uses the foolish acts of men to bring about his plan. And so it is with every situation that we face in our days as well. Well, before I get into a discussion of what's going on in our present hour, let's finish reading what is taking place in Benjamin, because it's really quite interesting. They're not giving, remember, wives 
to the people of Israel, or of Benjamin rather. So they're devising a second plan. It tells us in verse 18, We cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the children of Israel have sworn an oath, saying, Cursed be the one who gives a wife to Benjamin. And then they said, In fact, there is a yearly feast of the Lord in Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, and south of Labona. Therefore they instructed the children of Benjamin, saying, Go, lie in wait in the vineyards, and watch. And just when the daughters of Shiloh come out to perform their dances, then come out from the vineyards, and every man catch a wife for himself from the daughters of Shiloh, then go to the land of Benjamin. So we're not giving you, but we're letting you steal a wife. Fair game. Anything in the sight of man, which is not God's will, if they don't want to have God as their king, they're going to do it their way. And that's what they've done. They were successful. The other 200 Benjamites found wives. Well, verse 22 continues to the end. Then it shall be when their fathers or their brothers come to us to complain that we will say to them, Be kind to them for our sakes, because we did not take a wife for any of them in the war. For it is not as though you have given the women to them at this time, making yourselves guilty on your oath. And the children of Benjamin did so. They took enough wives for their number from those who danced, whom they caught. Then they went and returned to their inheritance, and they rebuilt the cities and dwelt in them. So the children of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. They went out from there, every man to his inheritance. And finally, the last words in the book of Judges is a repetition of the thing that he's been saying over and over again that hopefully we all have now drilled into our own minds. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king physically in Israel until Saul became their king. Even he was a bad choice because it was a people's choice. It wasn't until David that God chose a king who would be ruler in Israel and who would unite the people as one. Many days will come and go before that day. They will continue in their sin. And now I wonder, are we any different, really, You know, I look around in the world today and I look at the terrible crimes that were committed against that poor concubine. Just one woman. Outside of a home in Gibeah. Raped over and over again until she finally succumbed from the wounds that she received and died at the threshold of a home that was supposed to have been her shelter. Seems almost impossible that such a thing could happen today. But look around. October 7th was a day of infamy where 1,200 Israelites were relentlessly murdered. Women and children beheaded, tortured, 
Young women raped and tortured. Their body parts cut off and brought back to Gaza as trophies. Men are just as evil today as the men in that day. And why? Because the same basic law. They did what was right in their own eyes. That's what happens when men do things their own way. And even, even in this country, you look at our, our nation, you find so many things that you can say they're doing what is right in their own eyes. Whether it's pornography, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's abortion, whether it's immigration, whether it's laws being made that are contrary to God's laws, all of those things are happening because men want to do what is right in their own eyes. This country that we live in is no exception. And we are just as much in need of God's mercy, but I'm afraid for that, which maybe not be, that he will take his mercy from off of this nation. And I'm not sure if or when that will happen. But I do know this. We're certainly giving God ample reason to do so. I don't understand all of God's mercy and grace. But I do know that we're still here. And we've got work to do. We are a remnant. And while we're here, we can make our voices heard. Just today, we heard great news with regard to a law that they wanted to bring before our state's legislature that would have allowed operations to be performed on minors to change their gender. And it wasn't just it wasn't just minors from the state of Maine. It would have been minors from any state could come to the state of Maine and have that surgery. It would have been such a terrible decision for the legislature to have passed. Fortunately, it will not go, at least in this present form, to our state's legislature. The working session that met today defeated it, and I'm told unanimously. What a great victory this is for the people of God who prayed for this to be the case. Those who came and spoke against this terrible thing last year, and and those who were in the working session, the representatives who met together and went over all of the testimonies, they came to the right conclusion. But that is just one small thing. There's so much more work that needs to be done, friends. And I'm fearful that we're running out of time. But we need to continue to pray. We need to continue to ask the Lord to intervene, to save souls and to win those victories over and over and over again if he's going to help us. It must be soon. And if he chooses not to, I think our time is coming to an end. But until whatever the consequences may be for all of us, let us shine light. Let us be faithful to him. And let us pray to our Heavenly Father that he would extend his mercy until his house is full. That's our goal. That's our purpose. 
Let us be strong in this by the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish His will in these last hours.